Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. It wasn't that long ago I was on the air last with you guys, uh, but then again, even after a three-day hiatus, I'm glad to be back on the air. And not only am I just glad to be back on the air, the most important thing is I've, I've got my outline ready to go, but then again, if I didn't have my outline as to what we would be uh, discussing, then uh, that would not um, make for um, a good uh, setting. It's one thing to be uh, prepared, but at the same time, you want to make sure that you have obviously have a good um, starting point and a good um, ending point. Ever since I began podcasting back in June of 2020, um, I've been very thankful to have had uh, many um, loyal followers, um, ardent supporters. It's something I don't uh, take for granted at all. And, you know, I'm not going to uh, flaunt this, but I am close to 42,000 plays. But it's not so much that I'm at four, close to 42,000 plays. It's the fact that so many of you all have been with me uh, throughout this uh, journey. And I don't see this journey slowing down. But the fact that I've uh, been able to garner this much success, thanks to you all, my fellow listeners, it just goes to show that um, that people out there are interested in history. And while, yes, history is important to learn, and while, yes, history can be fascinating, I do have to remind myself, and we all have to, that uh, there have been uh, many of uh, many of times throughout the history of mankind where um, history has not always been pleasant. Even that is a vague term unto itself, but we just have to be constantly reminded that um, for every um, good event that might have happened in history and for everything that is of... Uh, relevant importance, regardless of, um, an, ev of an event or a uh, person that we are learning about, we do also have to be reminded at times that uh, some things have taken place throughout mankind's history that have not been for the better. And the most important thing that we can do, obviously, is not only learn from those uh, mistakes, but to make sure that they don't happen again. And um, I have to always remind myself of that. Um, I am aware that, that there are um, things that have happened um, throughout the course of time that uh, have not been for the better. Um, when I think of uh, a, a terrible event that happened, if one were to ask me if you could um, think of one terrible event that happened um, that uh, that uh, had a negative impact on mankind, not just a uh, minimal negative impact, but a profound uh, negative impact on mankind, I would tell you right now, uh, the Holocaust. Um, I have uh, learned a great deal about the Holocaust for some time, and every time I watch a documentary on the Holocaust, I always have to cringe. I um, cover my mouth because I have to remind myself of the horrors that so many people endured to think that, you know, six million people lost their lives. And so many people's lives were changed forever. I can't imagine uh, just how many uh, Jewish families may have been, or, or Jewish uh, relatives, families, uh, friends, had to, in, in many of instances, turn on one another just to ensure, um, uh, just to ensure that there would be a, um, a chance that they might be able to survive for a little bit longer until they sadly met their ultimate fates at, um, in the most unpleasant of circumstances, being uh, the concentration camps. And I'm, I'm not here to, um, 
I'm not I'm not trying to remind those who um, survived the Holocaust or those who lost loved ones from the Holocaust. I'm not trying to bring up uh, painful memories at all. But what I'm trying to tell you all is that I am aware of those uh, circumstances, and I am aware that yes, the Holocaust happened. And it, it was a, a, a terrible thing that happened, and that whenever I see documentaries about an, a, a horrific um, chapter in history such as that, I uh, do have to um, I do have to cringe. I always make sure to cover my mouth. I always um, shake my head in, in disbelief, knowing that this truly that um, period of time was really in my opinion, one of the most ultimate um, all-time lows in mankind's history. Of course, one would say that there are other events, and while and while uh, people are right about that, but um, that to me, uh, being the Holocaust, is the one that really stands out the most as being one of the greatest all-time lows of um, mankind's uh, history. And, and, you know, I do have to remind myself that um, mankind has not always been uh, nice to... Um, to people from uh, within, and unfortunately, it still happens uh, today, regardless of where we live in the world and all. But, anyways, um, I think it's time to uh, shift gears and um, focus on what we've been discussing uh, for um, for quite a good while. And I and I'm very thankful that I've had a lot of uh, listeners um, follow uh, with me on uh, Eric J. Dolan's uh, "Rebels at Sea: Privateering in the American Revolution." What I'll tell you this is that in this uh, podcast uh, segment, we're going to learn about how the British um, strike back. You know, it seems like the British have been outsmarted for quite some time uh, by the American privateers. And I almost have to wonder, why is it that Britain was slow to respond? But I also have to wonder, how is Britain going to respond so that uh, she will no longer be intimidated by her... um, former subjects being the 13 colonies. So that's just one of um, one of a, a handful of some uh, unique things that we will be talking about uh, in this uh, discussion. But I believe it's time to get the show on the road. So here we go with our uh, first question. Was the overall findings behind capturing of British vessels ever proven to be 100% accurate? Sometimes we'd like to be able to think that the overall findings behind something that has been studied or has been debated on for some time could actually be proven to be 100% accurate. Sometimes it happens where it is 100% accurate and other times it's not, but uh, the answer to this question is no. However, uh, there have been uh, individuals who have done extensive work in coming up with in coming up with a rough estimate of numbers uh, considered um, halfway accurate to almost being close to 100% right. If I had to pick uh, one person that I was uh, very impressed with in terms of, um, based upon the uh, reading in this book, who uh, really uh, went above and beyond to um, to get the number figures right, um, how about um, a guy named um, John Bennett Jr.? Well, the best source behind the records of British vessels getting captured came from a record file in the early 1800s by Mr. John Bennett Jr., who was the first secretary of Lloyd's of London. 
For those of you who live in England, you all are very familiar with Lloyd's of London. I did not really know a whole lot about Lloyd's of London until after I had uh, read this book. But I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who probably didn't, who probably have never heard of Lloyd's of London, and that's okay. But for starters, Lloyd's of London is in fact the world's biggest. I don't know if it still is today the world's biggest insurance marketplace, but uh, during the 19th and 20th centuries, it, it's probably fair to say that um, Lloyd's of London would have, in fact, been the world's biggest insurance marketplace. Mr. Bennett, he uh, was able to do, uh, he did, well, he did extensive research and uh, confirmed that out of 3,386 British vessels seized during the Revolutionary War, how about that? Just shy of thirty-four, just shy of um, thirty-four hundred, there, folks. But Mr. Bennett confirmed out of thirty-three hundred and eighty-six British vessels seized during the Revolutionary War that only one thousand two ended up getting recaptured. That seems like a pretty small number, but but the bad part is if you're on the side of the British, twenty-three hundred eighty-four British prizes were left in the hands of Continental and State Navy vessels, including Washington's Navy, French and Spanish vessels, whom also went after British ships. So, I'm sure some of you are thinking, why are Spanish vessels going after the British ships? Well, if France is at war against uh, England, wouldn't it be fair to say that Spain should join the fight against England? I mean, think about it, folks. Even Spain and England had a history of uh, warfare along the seas. Uh, whenever I think of Britain and Spain being at war along the waters, think of um, 15, the year 1588. Queen Elizabeth I, not the second, folks, but Queen Elizabeth I is still, um, is still ruling England. Britain's navy comes to prominence by defeating the Spanish Armada. So, because Britain had defeated Spain in 1588, that not only um, elevated Britain's navy, but Britain as a superpower in the world. And of course, 20 years later, after that time, what does England succeed, finally succeed at doing? Establishing the first permanent English colony settlement in the New World at present-day Jamestown, Virginia. So, I could see how... Um, by the time the Revolutionary War has um, kicked into full gear, not only um, is France still angry at Britain for the seven for the hostilities that um, occurred during the Seven Years' War, but I could see how Spain is growing all the more concerned about England's presence. After all, yes, the Spanish have um, settlements in the Caribbean. They also have uh, they also control what we know as New Orleans, Louisiana. Spain has uh, territory along the Gulf of Mexico. And, of course, for the Spanish, what are they afraid of? Uh, they're, they're concerned that the British, if the British have it their way, they could be the ones in control of all the territory along the Gulf of Mexico, including uh, present-day New Orleans, Louisiana. So, yes, the Spanish are definitely in this fight. Now, what I've found overall uh, to be very interesting was that... Um, Despite everybody being involved, that is, you know, the Continental and State Navy vessels, Washington's Navy, to French and Spanish uh, vessels participating, the American privateers claimed responsibility for the highest number of captures. 
it turns out that the prize range for um, for uh, captures on the part of the um, American privateers, given that it was between 1,600 to 1,800 prizes, if you take uh, 2,384 um, British prizes being captured out of 3,386 um, um privateer vessels altogether, that is 2,384 uh, prizes out of 3,386 uh, British vessels uh, that were uh, seized. That means, folks, that 70% of British ships were in American hands. So you take 2,384, divide that into 3,386, you get 70% of British ships in American hands. That's not a good sign if you're on uh, the side of the British. You've got to come up now with some better strategies on how you can be, how you can go about intimidating the, uh, in your eyes, what's supposed to be a weaker foe, but yet they've proven to to be the exact opposite. Now, come uh, Revolutionary War's end, did British sources go about recording the total costs behind all ships captured by the enemy, A.K.A. Americans? No, but. During February of 1778, while Parliament was in session, statistics revealed that 559 vessels, folks, 559, that's a pretty impressive number. So 559 vessels got captured by American privateers in the Continental Navy. The ships um, leading to a loss at around 2.6 million pounds. What historians now have uh, figured out was that the average value per British vessel was roughly around 4,651 pounds. I'm not sure what that would come out to in terms of um, millions of dollars, but to have an average value uh, price of just shy of 5,000 pounds, uh, that's a pretty respectable amount. American uh, forces privateers having brought in between 1,600 to 1,800 prizes, that total value of prizes stood out between 7.4 and 8.4 million pounds. And if you equate, and if you, um, equate that into today's dollars, folks, get this, it would come out to a staggering 1.4 or 1.6 billion in today's money. So whatever amount of... Um, Whatever amount in terms of uh, money figures from the Revolutionary War, I mean, that was a respectable number. But can you imagine just what the money figures would be in today's time, resulting in 1.4 to 1.6 billion? Talk about a quick, rich scheme for those whom are uh, desperate to make an extra buck, considering that their livelihoods had been... Um, had been uh, significantly altered, especially if you lived in New England uh, and had worked in the Port of Boston when uh, Parliament in 1774 closed the Port of Boston. I could see how, you know, you're desperate, you need to reinvent the wheel. What do you go about engaging in? Privateering. The majority of prizes captured by American privateers comprised of goods that were in high demand amongst the 13 colonies, or in the eyes of uh, the British being, yes, colonies, but not states. We might view ourselves as states, but in the eyes of uh, the British, we're, we're still considered colonies to them. The goods um, 
that were probably in the highest of demand that were able to be seized by uh, scores of privateer uh, ships on the side of the Americans. These goods ranged from um, essential provisions like beef, salted pork, flour, rum, to essential clothing like shoes, jackets, socks, stuff that sometimes we may take for granted today, but anytime uh, one side got provisions, especially on the side of the Americans, that was a big deal because we didn't have the same kind of um, operating system like Parliament did. But, of course, that's not to say that even Parliament's, um, th that Parliament itself isn't immune from um, money losses and also from uh, deficits, given that they were hoping that this uh, conflict was going to be a simple one, where maybe within a year's time, all 13 uh, subjects, being the colonies, would <laughs> come to their senses and resubmit their allegiance to the crown. But as th the longer this war goes on, Parliament, and uh, most notably the British Treasury, perhaps I should say the Treasury, Britain's Treasury, is going to become depleted with money. So that's actually a good thing if you're on uh, the side of the Patriots. You want to basically wear down this enemy to the point where they may be the ones having to surrender under the most unusual of circumstances. So, and you know, yes, it's important that um, for the Americans to have um, gotten such essential goods like the beef, salted pork, flour, rum, shoes, jackets, socks. But another um, essential um, item that that perhaps the Americans often feared uh, being short on were munitions like gunpowder. You know, we have to remember that we don't have a, a defense supply shop, although um, if you go to Colonial Williamsburg, they do have a um, tinsmith shop where they are making um, goods for the uh, Continental Army. Think of it as almost like a um, government uh, contracting facility um, or modern-day government contracting facility. But at the same time, your biggest concern is, you know, the longer this conflict goes on, we've got to make sure that we have enough gunpowder for the troops uh, because, you know, we can't expect a slam-dunk victory overnight that would end this war altogether. But we've got to have enough uh, provisions and munitions that are going to last us, not just sh the short term, but the long term. Now, uh, as for prizes on the British side, um, really were uh, American privateers. The vessels alone were of more value given so many alone were captured by uh, enemy raids along the waters. So anytime the British got their hands on a um, an American vessel or American vessels, it was their way of being able to recoup uh, losses um, that they just simply had not anticipated. Uh, American privateers... There's no question about this, that American privateers were responsible for wreaking havoc on multiple British merchants. But if we look at the years from 1779 to 1782 per Lloyd's of London, the number of British vessels captured yearly was equal to almost 8% of the entire British merchant fleet. The losses were so bad simply in part because they all came from the Caribbean uh, trade network. From 1779 to 1782, being the years of, of great loss at the hands of American privateers, if one had to pick one particular commodity that was negatively impacted, 
that probably endured the greatest uh, financial loss. Wouldn't it be fair to say it was sugar? I would say so, because think about how much sugar is needing to be produced. And think about how much sugar is needing to be transported, uh, technically 3,000 miles across the ocean. Who is the number one consumer of sugar? Europe, most notably, you know, Britain, France. Uh, I don't know about Spain, but I know the British love their sugar. Think about it. Sugar is used in cakes, jellies, uh, coffee, tea, um, cookies. Think about it. They don't really have any other alternative means for um, enhancing the flavoring in their um, hot beverages or let alone, um, we call it uh, dessert, um, dessert items. Of course, when I think of de uh, dessert in uh, colonial days, I think of the phrase deserting from the table. In other words, you're not leaving the table, but when you do um, dessert from the table, you are uh, carrying with you a portable um, dessert, uh, almost uh, like gelatin, uh, jello, or you're transporting with you in a um, small uh, cup um, pudding for its time. So... Just remember, folks, deserting from the table doesn't mean that you're abandoning it. You could, you, you might be leaving the table, but you're leaving something, but you're bringing something with you uh, that's portable, uh, being a dessert that uh, doesn't require you to hold um, the food dish by the uh, hand in terms of uh, eating into it. At the Revolutionary War's outset, was Britain's naval force in good shape? As much as I would like to tell you all yes, I'm going to flat out have to tell you all the opposite, no. And to me, it was a, it was a real um, eye-opener. It was a real shock. Because everybody, you know, knows that during the Revolutionary War, and even before the Revolutionary War, that, you know, who has the mightiest navy in the world? It's Britain. So wouldn't you think that at the time that um, America has severed its ties from England and Shots have been fired round the world. It, the, the, the famous phrase, shots heard round the world, that uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson coined at uh, Lexington and Concord, uh, April 19th of 1775. Wouldn't it be fair to, to think or assume that the British already had their navy lined up ready to go at any moment's notice? Well, the thing is, is that if the British did have their navy ready to go, their ships were in other parts of the world. We do have to keep in mind that when you are the world's formidable, world's most formidable army and navy, you don't concentrate all of your uh, forces in one country. You are uh, stationed throughout the world where the needs are the most pressing. And while, yes, there were British troops in Boston, I can tell you this much, there, the number was not 10,000. Even when General Thomas Gage arrived to Boston in the late 1760s, he had between one and 2,000 soldiers, which was a lot of uh, soldiers. Of course, even General Thomas Gage himself constantly demanded for, for more uh, troops to come into Boston, given how uh, dire the situation was with the uh, inhabitants of the town. But, those, but his requests were denied, simply in part because Parliament did not have the resources to be able to transport uh, further um, supplies of troops that uh, would not happen until the start of the 1770s. So, believe it or not, folks, at the Revolutionary War's outset, uh, Britain's naval force was not in good shape. But, it, but and another reason for why 
it was not in good shape. Well, one reason maybe I'll just tell you is because less than or around a hundred of its two hundred less than or around a hundred of its two hundred and seventy ships were readily available for action. So while some of her ships are readily available, the full nine yards aren't. So if you do the math, one hundred into two hundred and seventy, that comes out to only thirty seven percent of England's ships being uh, readily prepared. So we're not, if you're on the side of the British, you're not even close to 50%. I mean, yes, you would like to be well above 50%, but given that only 30, 37% of England's ships are readily prepared, not a good sign. Prior to war's end, though, Britain's Royal Navy underwent a great expansion, resulting in 468 vessels, 174 ships of the line with 110,000 men, 300 or more were equipped as fighting vessels. Okay, so Britain has now undergone an extreme makeover, we could say. How about this question? Uh, given American privateers were of grave concern to Britain, how did the Royal Navy go about confronting the issue? Well, it's more than one uh, strategy. For starters, the Royal Navy deployed multiple ships to convoy duty, where these ships accompanied vessels, perhaps vessels that were smaller sizes, whom perhaps had endured previous um, attacks against enemy, being that of the Americans, where their journey or trip back to England got delayed. So if it wasn't a physical attack, it was more of a harassment kind of thing, where it would have uh, not only caught the enemy off guard, but it would have uh, forced them to uh, delay their departure. And, and as we learned from a previous podcast, that many uh, ships, on uh, British ships, that is, were very hesitant to go alone out in the open waters. And, you know, it would be fair to say that you couldn't blame them. So that's why they were dependent upon uh, larger ships of the line that would be able to provide uh, the smaller uh, vessels with um, a greater enhancement of uh, protection. Secondly, uh, the Royal Navy promoted the use of force as a means of retaliation, okay? If uh, the American privateers are going to harass British privateers, then why not just in extract a little bit of force? Why not, knock why not knock the Americans off their socks and give them a taste of their medicine? So, yeah, we'll, we'll use some retaliation. Third, uh, the Royal Navy and the British Army sought to inflict harm on American privateers by attacking their bases, okay? Their bases, would that be like, for example, their uh, town, their hometown ports? Absolutely. So think about it. If the Royal Navy and the British Army are going to go on, a, on joint missions and attack American privateers by uh, doing so at their bases, it's going to impact ships, or I should say vessels, coming in and out of their hometown village ports. It might be fair to say that the uh, third option really would be one that could bear a resemblance to uh, modern-day uh, domestic terrorism. And by no means am I, um, and by no means would I ever, would I ever uh, even think of advocating something like that. I'm not trying to sound political, folks, but let's keep in mind that um, terrorism itself has been around since the beginning of time. Uh, we do tend to forget that, but. Uh, but terrorism has evolved into um, different levels uh, throughout the course of mankind 
Of course, when I think of uh, terrorism, I sadly think of what happened on 9-11. I've all, I also think of uh, events that have happened in, um, in regions around the world where, um, where uh, terrorist activities have been tolerated and have become a norm for, um, for conflict uh, resolution, sadly. So we should keep in mind that even during the American Revolutionary War, that terrorism did go on. Now, a good um, example here of where um, a situation arose between uh, privateer vessels um, involving, involving rather I should say, um, America and uh, England uh, came in April of 1777. It really was, in a sense, a great imbalance of power when the 74-gun HMS Terrible, being that on the side of the British, captured a privateer brigantine being a two-masted sailing ship, the Rising States, in the Bay of Biscay. And for those of you who aren't familiar where the Bay of Biscay is, well, for starters, it's a gulf. And a gulf is a large inlet uh, from the ocean into the landmass. So basically, it's a you know body of water that is um, that almost um, that that does connect uh, to the land. It's in other words, it's not totally one hundred percent separated. But as for the Bay of Biscay, it's a gulf out of the Northeast Atlantic Ocean, located south of the Celtic Sea. It lies along France's western coast. Uh, prior to the capture of Rising States. Rising states had seized three prizes, and the manning of the prizes reduced the crew from 61 to less than 40. So it's one thing to have a lot of men out on a boat, out on a privateer vessel, in search of uh, prizes. But once these prizes have been seized, you probably don't need as many men aboard um, the vessel. So, okay, three Three successful uh, prizes got seized, and now our crew has been reduced from 61 to 40. That doesn't mean we're out of the woods. What is the HMS Terrible doing next? She's firing multiple times on purpose, and by doing so, she's trying to get uh, the rising states to show its colors. In other words, its true nation identity. If I'm not mistaken, we had learned from a previous podcast how um, when acts of, um, how do you call it, when acts of uh, warfare along the seas occurred involving uh, privateer vessels, one side would, would, would be the one to show its true identity in terms of the nation it represented. The other side may claim to be of, um, of a particular nation, but all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it could change its colors, being its flag, and then reveal its true identity. So for, um, for the HMS Terrible, they want to make sure that who they're firing at really is the real thing. They don't want to be um, going against someone who's neutral or yet someone who is uh, claiming to be an imposter in terms of uh, the nation they are representing. James Thompson, uh, captain of Rising States, ordered his crew to fire back with his um, privateer's two stern chasers. And uh, stern chasers are uh, guns or cannons that get placed on the stern of a ship, being uh, the back, 
for firing at an incoming enemy, in this case being a vessel. Sir Richard Bickerton, who is the HMS's, uh, who is the captain of the HMS Terrible, instructed his gunners to bring out three 18-pounders with the sole mission of sinking the rising states. The order to go forward with this mission, though, got canceled when Captain Thompson advised Captain Bickerton he had 19 English prisoners on his ship. Although Rising States struck HMS Terrible, with English prisoners getting returned, the prize crew sailed Rising States to Spithead, England, where it eventually got sold by a court of admiralty and placed into service as a British letter of marquee. So I could say that this was a little bit of triumph and tragedy for the um, for the uh, for rising states. Here they were willing to release 19 English prisoners. It would be easy to think, okay, if you've released 19 of our men, we'll just let you go. No, no, no. You you've created enough havoc on the waters for us. Now it's our turn to um, extract a little bit more revenge. And what was that revenge? Bringing um, rising states all the way to England, where it got sold. And for all those uh, men aboard rising states, I, I don't know what happened to those men. It wasn't revealed, but I do wonder if they were uh, sent to prison in England, and many of them perhaps could have died a, a, a terrible death. That's uh, one of the sad uh, sacrifices that um, that many um, privateersmen ultimately uh, met. Those who were captured, many of them uh, did not make it home. If they, if those who were captured did make it home, it was because of a prisoner exchange based upon uh, their status rank. So just because you were a prisoner, it didn't always mean that you um, were able to be part of what was called a uh, prisoner exchange. And I'm sure that might get revealed somewhere down the road in another podcast. I just have a strong hunch about it. What played out in early September 1778? British Rear Admiral James Gambier ordered a large fleet of ships eastward from New York with targeted destination being Bedford, or what we now know as present-day New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, which is uh, south of uh, Boston. 4,000 army troops were led by uh, Major Charles Gray. Now, you talk about a very intense operation here, folks. Uh, this was, um, to me, this was profound, because I can't imagine being on the side of the Americans and witnessing the carnage that will be uh, that we will be learning about uh, here in quite uh, shortly. Matter of fact, we'll learn about it right now. September 5th to the 6th of 1778, Major Charles Gray went about leading raids at New Bedford, where his troops destroyed roughly 20 shops, 22 houses within the town. Fires had, were so bad, folks, that the glow alone could be spotted 20 miles away in Newport, Rhode Island. I'll tell you this much, folks. New Bedford, uh, Massachusetts, is not far from the Massachusetts-Rhode Island line. Uh, I know that it's not far from a place called uh, Seekonk. And the only reason I know about Seekonk is uh, at my in my primary job being that of trucking. Um, 
our uh, the trucking company I work for has a terminal up in uh, Seekonk, Massachusetts, and that terminal services all of Rhode Island. So if there's a shipment picking up or delivering to Newport, Rhode Island, it's going to be from our Seekonk, Massachusetts facility. So, so yes, uh, 20 shops, 22 houses within the town of New Bedford are up in flames. And to think that these fires are so bad, folks, that the glow alone could be spotted 20 miles away if you lived in Newport, Rhode Island. That, to me, is um, probably, it's it's got to be up there as being a five-alarm fire, if there is such a thing. After, and the, after all of this uh, carnage had taken place in uh, New Bedford, Massachusetts, uh, Major Gray and his um, troops went on to uh, Falmouth, which is in uh, Cape Cod, and whenever I think of Falmouth, I think of um, the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, which is uh, located in Falmouth, just uh, west of Hyannis. So Falmouth, um, at Falmouth, uh, Major Gray's uh, troop force took three vessels while burning one. After Falmouth, Gray's troops went on to Martha's Vineyard. I've been there before, and it's very nice. But I think at this time in 1778, I'm not sure I would have wanted to have been in Martha's Vineyard, even if I was on the side, on the side of the Patriots, because uh, Martha's Vineyard wasn't spared, folks. So when Major uh, Gray and his uh, troop force uh, make their way into Martha's Vineyard, they destroyed six ships. They even destroyed a salt works. And for some of you who aren't sure exactly what a salt work is, that's a place where, or a facility where salt is refined, and prepared commercially. So an entire salt works is gone, folks. If that's bad enough, how about 28 whale boats being destroyed? The whale boats really are, the whale boats are your open boat or boats used for catching whales. Also captured, folks, listen to this. Uh, what kind of animals were living on uh, Martha's Vineyard? I never thought this, but but it, but it was the case at the time. Sheep. We're not just talking about like, you know, 50 or 100 sheep, folks. I can tell you this much, that Major Charles Gray and his forces captured 10,574 sheep, 315 cattle, 52 tons of hay to an assortment of arms and munitions. Nothing was left spared. But I can only imagine watching all the carnage happening if you are not on the side of the British. Your whole livelihood is now pretty much disrupted. It's not disrupted. It, it's, um, it's gone. You can get it back, but it's just not going to happen overnight. Prior to 1780 ending, what took place within the Continental Army, which sent shockwaves? I bet some of you probably already know. It does involve an officer. Someone that George Washington had respect for. Someone that Washington always believed would remain loyal, even in the, even in the darkest of times that the Continental Army endured, especially early on at the war's onset. And of course, when I think of um, the darkest of times... The, at the war's uh, early onset, um, I think of um, like the the New York debacle, and that led to um, 
that led to an all-time low where desertions were rampant, and then we have this miracle at Trenton that uh, saves the uh, cause itself from being completely extinguished. But prior to 1780, what has taken place within the Continental Army that has sent shockwaves? And as I said earlier, it involves a, an officer. It happens to be a fellow by the name of Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold ultimately defected, or let alone, I should say, betrayed, which resulted in his switching sides by joining the British. We must keep in mind, though, that Arnold's defection didn't happen overnight. And even this uh, matter alone is it could be for a whole other um, topic. For, for all I know, it could be perhaps for, another, for a podcast series uh, book topic at a later time. I do know that I uh, read a book on Benedict Arnold over the summer uh, last year, and it was very well worth reading. I learned a great deal about Arnold, why he defected, and really more about the man himself. But one thing I can tell you all is that Benedict Arnold's defection did not happen overnight. Of course, the textbooks would like to... I'm sure the textbooks told us years ago that he just defected overnight and wasn't happy and and, you know, and committed the ultimate uh, act of betrayal. Well, whatever the textbooks told us years ago, they got it wrong. Benedict Arnold's defection did not happen overnight, but his state of unhappiness within the Continental Army could be traced back as late 1777, following um, what happened uh, with the American victory at Saratoga, uh, General Horatio Gates really um, treated Benedict Arnold like dirt. Uh, he never gave Benedict Arnold the full recognition he deserved. It was really Benedict Arnold's uh, leadership that um, prevailed in uh, defeating the British at Saratoga, but yet D General Horatio Gates was the one that you know got all the credit for it. That was just uh, one of uh, a handful of things that... Um, that um, caused Benedict Arnold to be one of, um, how do you call it, to be one who was in a constant state of unhappiness, but one who had who was in a state of unpredictability. Um, but as we go into the beginning of 1778, uh, he began to show uh, greater signs of resentment towards other officers who were uh, rival, um, rival uh, comrades including uh, younger generals whom were getting promotions and honors before his name ever got mentioned. You know, one of the biggest challenges for George Washington throughout this entire um, war was that in order for the Revolutionary War itself to be a um, united front, he had to get officers not only from New England, he had to find um, officers from uh, the middle colonies of like Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware. He also had to get officers from uh, the southern colonies as well, because if Washington is concentrating all of his officers from one region alone, like let's say being that of New England, where, um, where the first um, flags or the first um, movement behind independence started, and we could say being that of Boston, Massachusetts, if Washington's concentrating all of his officers within his inner circle from New England and leaving out the middle and southern colonies, then it's really not a united front. So for George Washington, in order to 
in order to have successful leadership, not only from within the inner circle, but from below, he's got to draw from every region. And is it fair to say that even the general himself can't please everyone? Absolutely. Is it fair to say that even Benedict Arnold himself can't be satisfied? Yes. Even George Washington told Benedict Arnold, hey, patience is a virtue. But Arnold didn't see it that way. Uh, in July of 1779, a, a good example here was that Benedict Arnold had been providing British sources with Continental Army troop locations, including their strengths, along with telling the enemy, being that of the British, where the supply depot locations were located. Is it fair to say that prior to 1780 that Benedict Arnold was starting to sell out his own country? All because he was resentful of what was going on around him and that he was not being um, given a promotion when he deserved it. I can, I can certainly understand um, why he felt so uh, bitterly um, betrayed um, after Saratoga. That is, that is one thing right there that I can totally understand, but it's all the, it's all the other stuff that just doesn't make any sense. Now, uh, what seaport city in Connecticut from the time Rev the Revolutionary War first broke out had become a major place for privateering? It was uh, New London, Connecticut, located at the entrance of the Thames River. Of course, when I think of the Thames River, I think of uh, England because uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, given that I don't live too terribly far from Richmond, uh, Rich there is a place in England called Richmond on the Thames. Come the start of the early 19th century, New London, Connecticut, along with um, New Bedford, Massachusetts, and um, not Martha's Vineyard, but Nantucket, were the world's top three busiest whaling ports. And of course, I had known for some time that Nantucket was, um, was up there at the top, but I did not know about New Bedford, Massachusetts, including uh, New London, Connecticut. But why is New London important? Because in early September of 1781, British... Listen to this, folks. British Brigadier General Benedict Arnold. Okay, so he has already defected, and now he, the British have given him a rank of Brigadier General. Well, Bene British Brigadier General Benedict Arnold has led, will be leading uh, 2,000 men on a raid. And this raid is, it's not just serious, folks. It's um, catastrophic. This raid resulted in mass destruction of New London, Arnold himself sent out parties whom deliberately torched, torched structures of military and economic significance, including the homes of militia leaders to privateer owners, warehouse, warehouse facilities, the town mill, where you would have gone to have, um, to have uh, for uh, getting your flour, for example, a printing office where uh, the town newspaper would have come about including vessels tied up along the wharves. Remember how the British wanted to um, inflict uh, harm on, um, on, a, on a town or on towns with uh, seaports? Not just so much towns with seaports, but, um, but think about this, where, um, where the uh, vessels are coming in and out of. Yeah, that could really disrupt, um, disrupt a town's economic livelihood. Well, it happened here at New London, Connecticut. So nothing is spared. Benedict Arnold's troops burnt 12 vessels, primarily privateers, 
143 total buildings are destroyed, folks. I can't imagine witnessing my building, that is my business shop, go up in flames because of what Benedict Arnold and his 2,000-man uh, force have done. A hundred families are left homeless. You know, no matter what side you are on uh, during the time of war, yes, they one could say, oh, there are the winners and then there are the losers. But just because one emerges as a victor, it doesn't mean that they've endured uh, their share of um, unpleasantries. I mean, yes, the Americans won the war, but think of how many families on the American side were left homeless by um, by such as unpleasantries as what uh, British Brigadier General Benedict Arnold and his 2,000-man uh, force did uh, to the people, or rather I should say the residents of New London, Connecticut. Uh, was England itself the birthplace for privateering? Yes, but Britain did not mobilize as quickly in sending out her own privateers early on at the Revolutionary War's onset, or uh, beginning, I should say. It's not until March 11th of 1777, folks, that Parliament finally passes a law allowing the Lords of Admiralty to distribute letters of marquee to vessels sailing from England, Wales, and Scotland. Now they have full permission to attack all ships, vessels belonging to the enemy, being the Amer being their former subjects, the 13 colonies. From 1777 to 1783, Britain issued, get this folks, 7,352 privateering commissions, but not all of them were issued just for attacking American ships. Historians now know that 2,285 commissions were given to prey on American shipping, so if you do the math there, 2,285 into 7,352, that's 31% geared towards American ships, 2,328 on French shipping, that's 32%, 1,506 on Spanish shipping, that's 20%, how about 1,233 on Dutch Republic, which came out to 17%, quite uh, some unique statistics to say the least. However, the number of 2,676 is the total number of British privateering vessels throughout the Revolutionary War. Not a bad uh, grand number, to say the least. Uh, which of Britain's most royal colonies went about sending great numbers of privateers? How about Nova Scotia, New York City? I can, uh, you all will be uh, very interested uh, to know why Nova Scotia and New York City uh, were, um, were the ones who went about sending out great numbers of privateers. Well, at the, at the time the Revolutionary War broke out, there had been rumors of Nova Scotia becoming America's 14th colony in the fight against England, given three-quarters of Nova Scotia's 20,000 people moved from New England following the Seven Years' War, and before Revolutionary War, the personal and trading relations—the personal and trading relations between Nova Scotia and New England became tighter, for good reasons. However, even in 1775, it, even as as glorious as a year that might have been for when shots were first fired around the world. 
it doesn't mean that uh, the good times last forever. And it just so happened that even in 1775, what did American privateers start doing? They began attacking Nova Scotian ships, which over time led to negative repercussions impacting Nova Scotia's economy. And for the eyes and for the people in Nova Scotia, these attacks on their ships really were seen as non-justifiable. Now, between 1779 to 1781, Nova Scotian privateers came away with 42 prizes, majority being American privateers. That's not bad at all, uh, if you think about it. So between 1779 and 1781, 42 prizes, that's on average 14 prizes a year. Now, who is William Tryon? Tryon, spelled T-R-Y-O-N. He was a loyalist governor of New York. He was an ardent supporter behind privateering, and it had pri- and his uh, reasons for being such an ardent supporter behind privateering had to do with the elite merchant class struggling financially wise to stay afloat. In order for the um, elite merchant class to go about um, staying afloat, they had to find alternative ways in getting back uh, whatever um, current outstanding losses. Um, existed. In other words, they knew they couldn't get the full nine yards back of their um, outstanding losses, but their hope was to get at least close to 50% of it back. So come summer of 1778, after Parliament had given the green light, Governor Tryon approved to have 185 privateers built, or I should say fitted out with 6,000 men. From September of 1778 to March of 1779, Loyalist privateers, get this folks, seized 165 prizes valued around 600,000 pounds, with many ships being American privateers. Well, it looks like now that the British are really sticking it to the Americans. What became the most well-known New York privateer? It turns out it was a schooner, being that of a sailing ship known as the Royal Charlotte. Royal Charlotte was named in honor of uh, King George III's wife, being Queen Charlotte of Mecklenburg, Germany. So uh, the Royal Charlotte um, boasted 18 cannons and two swivel guns. She was launched in 1779 by a trio of ladies loyal to king and country whom paid for the vessel out of their own resources, being that out of their own money. Um, The Royal Charlotte did have some successful cruises, which included seizing a Spanish and an American privateer. Each were brought into New York City and auctioned. Well, the British privateer and Royal Navy um, certainly underwent a... um, They underwent quite a um, mass reinvention um, before the war ended. It was a much-needed one had Parliament not given them the green light... Who's to say that uh, the British would not have been able to have uh, rebounded the way they did? Of course, I know some of you are now thinking, gee, Kirk, uh, why are you uh, taking the side of the British? Well, I am trying to uh, make this uh, as impartial as I can be. In other words, I'm, you know, deep down inside, yes, I may be a patriot. I am a patriot, but I also have to remind myself now, Kirk, what if you were alive back then? And what if you did have some family who remained loyal to king and country, or let alone friends, neighbors? 
you know, it's one thing to profess your loyalty, but if you're not careful, it can come back and uh, get you in ways that you may not expect. It could even mean uh, result. Sadly, we must be reminded that loyalties were very fragile during this time, and people's loyalties, if they were divided, it either meant being disowned by their family or it could have resulted in death uh, or public humiliation by means of being tarred and feathered. However, um, as we uh, close this uh, podcast uh, segment, we do need to be uh, aware of the fact that with all these uh, British privateer and Royal Navy victories, what did it result in? What is, what's one thing that you all think uh, might have resulted is with these privateer and Royal Navy victories? How about the capturing of many American mariners? Which is going to lead us to the following question. What should be done with rebel prisoners? Britain's solution, folks, resulted in sending rebel prisoners to England, including prison ships in North America, most notably New York City. Britain approved what would become one of the most uh, horrific and forgotten of hidden secrets regarding the Revolutionary War's history. Well, folks, uh, when I'm on the air again next, we are going to learn about this um, dark chapter of the Revolutionary War's um, history. The title in the book of uh, Rebels at Sea is called Hell Afloat. If Hell Afloat doesn't tell us just... If Hell Afloat can't uh, provide us with a good uh, description of what we're about to learn in our next uh, podcast segment, then I don't know um, what else could justify that alone. But what we do need to be reminded of is that it's one thing to be a prisoner of war during this time, but not everyone gets to um, be freed as a means of a prisoner exchange. We will be learning in our next uh, podcast segment uh, the horrors of being a prisoner of war aboard, um, to me, most notable, I mean, yes, being a prisoner of war in England probably was bad enough, but to me, the the greatest travesty and the most uh, forgotten of um, hidden secrets during this time would have been uh, being a prisoner aboard a uh, prisoner of war ship, most notably in New York, in New York Harbor. So um, when I'm on the air again next, let's be prepared to uh, learn as much as there is possible about this um, dark um, chapter. But uh, we should also, um, in the end, I think it would be fair to say after we've uh, learned all that's necessary, we should be reminded that um, freedom is not free and that there were, uh, that there were many aboard these uh, ships who paid with their lives to ensure that countless others um, remained uh, free, that they could live in freedom. Well, thank you for your time as always, and thank you again for being such ardent listeners. Without you guys, I don't know where I would be, but um, I look forward to being back on the air again with you all as always, and uh, wherever you all may live in the world, please stay safe. Take care for now.